Good to see you this morning. Hey, instinctively, uh, we know that there's, uh, talk about the dark for a second, but instinctively, we know that there's something off about the dark. Uh, we can spin it, of course, and, and the way we spin this, especially at night, is you know, we look up into the night sky and we see the beauty of that, and we look at the stars and we marvel at the creation and we marvel at the creator who made it all. Uh, but even as we look up at the sky, you know, kind of processing the dark in a positive way, the more you think about it, the, the more you think about how uh, far it goes and you can't get to the end of it and it goes on forever and ever. And even this beautiful moment of trying to process the dark in a positive way becomes a bit scary for us. It elicits a little bit of fear. E- even, even the bravest, even the bravest among us fears what cannot be seen because the darkness allows many things to see us that we can't see. And I know some of you are going to have nightmares now. You're going to blame me for that tonight, and I get it, and that's fine, because we should feel that. We should feel the darkness around us. And given all that is said about light and darkness in the Scripture, and it's a lot, uh, we shouldn't have any trouble seeing the darkness for what it really is. And in the end, of course, here's what we understand about darkness, and this puts it right in the, in, in the perfect perspective. God will abolish darkness in the end. He's going to abolish it. In fact, in Revelation chapter 21, you go almost to the very end of the story, and, and all of the apocalyptic visions have come almost to an end, and, and, and uh, John is seeing the last of them. And in Revelation 21, we have this description of the new Jerusalem, the city of God, And this is the description we have. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. And then a little bit later on in those verses, there will be no night there. God will abolish darkness. But until then, until the beauty of that apocalyptic vision is finally fulfilled, until then we live in the midst of a dark world a dark world that is consumed by sin. Jesus described the people who live in this world. He described you and I in John 3, 19. He said, people loved darkness rather than light. That's our inclination. That's the direction we go. That's our default setting. And in response to that, Jesus intervened in the world. God intervened in the world and sent his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus called himself, this is in John chapter 8, Jesus called himself the light of the world. But, but not just himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 14, he says to us, to those who are Christians, you are the light of the world. He's the light of the world, and he's making us the light of the world. And even the message that we proclaim as light bearers of God. The message itself in 2 Corinthians 4.4 is called the light of the gospel. And in today's passage, read this narrative about Peter getting out of jail, this deliverance of Peter from jail. And in the midst of all of this happening, it says this in, in verse seven, we'll read it in a second. It says, a light shone in the cell. A light shone in that prison cell making it evident that having the light makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference for us, and it points 
hopefully to that end of the story scene where there will be no night there, but also it's pushing back the darkness in the here and now. And we all need that, don't we? We all need the darkness to be pushed back even in our own lives, even as Christians. This whole, this whole week has been about the darkness encroaching in on your light, and we come together again as the church today to hear the word of God proclaimed, to hear the light of the gospel proclaimed, to push that darkness back again because it's been encroaching in all of our lives. Nathan prayed a few minutes ago about, just think about this, like, like hours and hours ago, day dawned, Sunday dawned in, in the South Pacific and in Australia. And we know pastors in Australia, part of our, our Acts 29 network, and they got up hours and hours ago on this Sunday, and they began proclaiming the gospel and pushing the darkness back in their cities in Australia, New Zealand, and Southeast Asia. And as the sun moved around, as the world moved around, and the sun dawned on all these different time zones, it was all about the gospel being proclaimed claimed and the darkness being pushed back again. And we need that. We need that gospel to push back the darkness. We need that light to shine. And so let me read this. This is Acts 8, uh, 12, I'm sorry, and I'm going to read the first 19 verses of this chapter. And then we're going to talk about the light of Christ. Sound good? All right, here it is. It's a great, a great story here. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding, before the, door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself. And put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. 
And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. What does it mean to have the light of Christ? That's what we're going to see in the text. Having the light of Christ, first of all, means that I discern darkness more easily. I can see the darkness for what it is. We're we're introduced here to Herod of the king in verse 1. This is, uh, for those of you who are keeping score on historical notes, uh, this is Herod Agrippa. He is the grandson of uh, Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the king at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod the Great was the one who slaughtered the baby boys in Bethlehem. Herod the Great was the one who murdered his own son, Agrippa's father, because he was afraid that Agrippa's father was going to take the throne from him. Herod the Great was four days from his own death, and he killed his own son out of fear that he was going to take the throne. And when you, when you read that, when, when you just hear what I just told you, but when you get into the depth of it and all the historical documents that exist about this family and their, their grip on power, it's easy to see how darkness gripped them, how they were operating in the darkness. And that's what compelled him. In verse 1, it says that he was harassing the church. And so in harassing the church, verse 2 tells us he killed James. This is James, who we're told is John's brother. This is James and John. They're they're part of the 12 disciples, the apostles. They were called the sons of Zebedee. We believe that James is the first of the apostles to, uh, to be martyred. So he kills James. And like any politician, because Agrippa is a politician, Like any politician, verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, like any politician, he's checking the poll numbers all the time. He wants to see how he's doing, right? He's checking the polls. How are we polling with the people? How are people feeling about our policies? And when he checked the poll numbers after he killed James, it was like favorables were way up. Everybody loved the fact that Agrippa had done that, that he had killed James. So he's going, how can I get more of that? How can I get more favorables? for doing things like this. So he decides, you know what I'll do? I'll arrest Peter, verse four. He arrested Peter, he put him into prison. Now, where he put him into prison, if you look up on the screen here, we have this model of of ancient uh, Jerusalem, and this is the temple court you can see in the foreground. There's the temple right in the middle. And then off in the back corner, you can see this little fortress that's there. That was built by Herod the Great in 35 AD. It's called the Antonia Fortress, and it was a garrison for Roman soldiers 600 Roman soldiers would have been garrisoned there. They had a prison there as well, and there was some palace uh, facilities there. And, and when Herod built it, because they wanted to keep control over the Jews, they put it right beside the temple, but he had secret tunnels built that would go right into the temple. So if there was ever an uprising, ever anything happened, they could simply go through the tunnels. They could get right into the temple and seize a power again. They kept everybody under control. It was called the Antonia Fortress because it was named for Herod the Great's good friend, Mark Anthony, who you will know from Roman history. Now, he's in that prison. He's in prison there. Herod delivers him over, it says in verse 4, to four squads of soldiers to keep him. I mean, Peter's such a notorious criminal, so dangerous. You know these fishermen from Galilee, right? So dangerous, these religious guys, four squads of soldiers to keep him. That's four 
A squad is, if you ever wonder, hey, this is my squad. Four people are in a squad. If you have five people, that's not your squad, okay? That's a squad plus one, okay? So four people in a squad. Uh, this is four, uh, four-man squads. Uh, they're, they're doing three-hour shifts, so they stay alert. And the plan was, notice in the verse, to bring him before the people after Passover. Now, Herod, again, back to the poll numbers, and he's very sensitive about what people think of him. And, and he's in this really precarious position because he's a king, sort of. He rules an area of land that Rome said was okay for him to rule. In other words, he's a vassal king under the emperor of Rome. So he has the pressure of pleasing Rome, and he has the pressure of doing well for his people, the Jewish people who live in the land, and there's a tension between those two things. And so he felt insecure, and historians note that he felt insecure about his Roman appointment, which could get pulled at any time, and keeping peace with the people, which he knew would benefit him with Rome if he could demonstrate the people are paying their taxes, they're being obedient, we have a peaceful state here, then Rome's inclined to leave him in place. So he wants to keep the peace at all costs. And, and, and so that's why he arrests Peter, because he sees the Christian a message as being disruptive to the peace. And he arrests Peter and he puts 16 soldiers in charge of guarding this one man because he knows, we, we just rewind to chapter five. The apostles were arrested by the religious leaders because they were preaching the gospel. They didn't like that. They put them all in prison. They intend to bring them out the next day. And the next day when they go to get them, they're not in the prison. They're back in the temple preaching because an angel came in and got them out of prison. Everyone knows the story. And so Agrippa's like, that ain't gonna happen. I'm putting 16 soldiers in charge of guarding this one guy because I wanna keep the peace. And you get that little synopsis of history, not just because Todd loves history and therefore you have to love history, though that is also true. You get that because we're talking here about the persecution and murder of preachers. We're talking about the suppression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the harsh rule of Agrippa and of Rome and all of this pointing to the darkness that existed in the world at the time that isn't different at all from the darkness that we experience today. Even later in the account, you can look down to the latter verses when Peter's delivered by the angel. Peter's not making any assumptions about his rescue. Verse 17, despite the very obvious divine deliverance, he gets to the gate where, where at, at John Mark's mom's house, he gets to the gate and he's knocking on the door and he's wanting to come and answer. And finally they do. We'll look at the, at the details of that later. Finally they come and they're all excited. They're amazed, they're excited, and they're talking a little bit too loudly for Peter. And he motions to them with his, what do you think the motion with his hand was? It was like, just escape prison, you idiots. And he told them how, look at verse 70, he told them how the Lord had delivered him out of prison. He instructed them to tell James, not the dead James, obviously, because he's dead, but the, the other James, this other, this other James is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, okay? So that James, 
came to faith in his brother after the resurrection, becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem and writes the New Testament book that bears his name. So that James, he says, go and tell James because he's now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then what does Peter do? He boots it out of there and he goes to an undisclosed location. Luke doesn't even tell, Luke's so um, protective of Peter that Luke doesn't even want to tell us the location. He's going to a safe house. Now listen, this is Jason Bourne stuff right here in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? This is exactly what it is. There's an escape. It's at night. They're running through city streets. There's people who are going to help. There's a safe house. There's dangers everywhere. Jason Bourne always knew you got to keep moving. You don't want to let the feds get the jump on you. Okay? You got to keep moving. If you stop, you die. And Peter knows this. I'm not sure if Peter had seen the movies, but instinctively he knew, he knew that he couldn't stay there. And why did he knew that? He knew that Herod's agents would know that John Mark's mom's place was a place where Christians gathered. And they, he knew he couldn't stay there. He was gonna have to go somewhere else. And so he's running, he's running from, with divine help, he's running from the darkness. Meanwhile, back at the jail, things are not going so well. The next morning, verse 18, there's no small stir among the soldiers, no kidding, about what had become of Peter. And here's, here's the evidence of the darkness and the evil of all of this. Verse 19 starts this way. It says, when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards, he interrogates the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. So I don't know if that's all 16 of them that got put to death or just the squad of four that was watching him that night, the two that were chained to him and the two that were at the gates. I don't know if it's just that four, but whatever, some of these soldiers get killed. And that in itself is such an insidious evil when we read that. But that was the heart behind Herod Agrippa's life. From Herod's standpoint, though, you have to understand, he had to have assumed that the soldiers, at least this one squad of soldiers, had colluded with the Christians to get Peter out of the prison. What other explanation could there be for a man who does not uh, does not put his trust in God and does not believe in the miraculous. This is a picture of political power corrupting the heart and the mind. It's power not for the sake of the people, which is what we talk about in, in, a, in a democracy and even in some monarchies. It would, it, it, we would talk about power as, as being something that should be stewarded so that the people benefit from it that it's benevolent and it's kind and it's, and it's for the, the benefit and favor of the people who are governed. And I get that that doesn't always work out that way. It's certainly not in monarchies and not even in democracies. This was power for the sake of power itself. Remember back in high school, we would talk about a power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's what we're seeing illustrated here. It's power for the sake of power. It's the power of darkness, in fact, in every case. The power of darkness. It is evil incarnate. It is the devil's way of doing things. It is the world system. And it is the fruit of our own fleshly desires. Give a man what he craves. Money, sex, and power. And he will crave it all the more. 
Every move that Herod makes here is about power. And, and what he doesn't know is that he is now on a collision course with the greatest power the universe knows. He's going to find himself facing the fearsome and awesome power of God. And this isn't, he thinks it is, but it's not about political intrigue in Rome or political intrigue in Jerusalem. Herod has gotten himself all up in the grill of the king of kings and lord of lords. And he doesn't know it yet, but it's a battle he cannot win. And after the embarrassment of losing Peter in verse 19, it, it, it finishes up and says, he, he went down from Judea to Caesarea. He got out of Jerusalem and he stayed in that coastal city. And historians, in fact, record him moving from Jerusalem to Caesarea in these days and staying in the coastal city. And we're going to see the end of the story here for Herod. We're going to see the end of that story in the latter verses of this chapter um, next Sunday and how uh, God deals with him in his pride. But how this all plays out for us today, because it's fine to talk about history and it's great to talk about the first century, but we have to take what we're hearing here and we have to look at our own lives and say, how's this playing out today? And the reality is we see differing degrees of harassment of Christians around the world today. Insofar as the sun rose first in Australia and in, in, in that part of the world and it continued around the world as the sun reached places in Asia and in the Middle East and in Africa, the reality is that in communist countries and in Hindu countries and in Muslim countries, people were gathering today to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ under threat of their own life. Because persecution is real in this world. And it can be deadly for believers to gather in the name of Jesus Christ. The darkness is very much active in many parts of the world in that way. In the post-Christian West where we live, the darkness is seen this way, increasing limits on freedom of speech and the exercise of our faith. The Judeo-Christian ethic upon which the Western civilization was created is ebbing away. Unrestricted access to abortion, growing prevalence of medical assistance in dying, including those who are vulnerable and with mental illnesses and not simply the terminally ill, the erosion of parental rights, the glorification of sexuality. The darkness is so prevalent today that we see prime ministers and presidents in democracies commit repeated, egregious ethic violations and face no consequences whatsoever. The moral center in Western culture is gone. It's gone. The darkness is all around us. Now, please hear me. And if you've heard me preach before, you know what I'm going to say next. This is not a call for a Christian army to marshal itself to go against the culture and take back the country. That is not what this is. That is not the tack that we're supposed to be taking. But this is a call to get our mouths open and allow our light to shine and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, to individuals all over the world who are in the grip of that darkness and to lead them into the light of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, here's the second thing. But for the Christian, the light of Christ also means that I seek the Lord very personally. I seek the Lord more earnestly. In other words, 
when I go through something like this, when I see the darkness encroaching in my life surrounding me, it compels me to prayer and it compels me to be as close as I possibly can be to my Savior. And Peter is in this desperate and seemingly hopeless situation. It is a hopeless situation. Even though they had been released from prison previously and they might have in their mind, you know what, God could do that again. Everything's changed since Acts chapter five and that happened. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen had preached a message and then was martyred right before their eyes, stoned to death for preaching the gospel. Now James also has been martyred for the faith and Peter's sitting in prison. There's no reason to believe that he had hope that he was gonna be released and every reason to believe that he thought when he woke up the next day, he was gonna be led to his death. It's a hope from, from a human standpoint, from his human life's point of view, this is a hopeless situation. But verse five, latter part says, constant prayer was being offered to God for him by the church. Verse 12 tells us they're meeting at John Mark's mom's place. And John Mark, this is the first introduction of him, but um, John Mark is going to become fairly prominent. He's going to be part of the missionary endeavor of Paul and Barnabas. He's going to get mentioned a few other times, and then he's going to have the privilege of writing the gospel of Mark. So he plays a pretty prominent role, but this, now we're just talking about a prayer meeting at his mom's place. And notice verse 12 says, many were gathered there praying. Now, I, I hear that. They're praying for him. That's what the verse says. They're praying for Peter. But that's all we have. But then I read that and I go, like, I wonder what they were praying for. Do you wonder that? Like, what exactly do you think was on the whiteboard, you know, as they're all praying? What do you think the prayer points were? Because that's the way you start prayer meetings, right? You have to list all the prayer requests first, and then you, you all gather to pray. So what do you think was on the whiteboard? Well, I have some ideas here. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. I thought, first of all, for sure, they must have been praying for his deliverance, even though they thought it was fairly hopeless. They must have been praying that he got delivered. God, you're a miracle-working God. We've seen you do this before. God, would you rescue him? Would you get him out of prison? Do it in whatever way you see fit. Do a miracle, God. I'm, I'm sure they were praying for that. Secondly, they must have been praying for patient endurance in the face of persecution, that, that, that Peter would be faithful, that he would be steadfast to his testimony and to his Lord in the face of whatever torture, the imprisonment, whatever happened to him, that he, that he would make it through it all. They had to be praying for that. Thirdly, they must have been praying for protection for the church and for the apostles and, and leaders in particular. They'd seen James be martyred, Peter arrested. They must have been thinking about the other apostles. They must have been thinking about themselves and their own families. God, would you protect us? We're faithful to you, but would you, would you keep us from prison and, and keep us from martyrdom and allow us to continue our work? Fourth, they must have been praying for gospel opportunities. Whatever else happens here, Lord, I, I pray there's an opportunity for the gospel to be preached. Maybe those soldiers will come to faith. Maybe Peter will be able to talk to them. Maybe other officials, maybe another opportunity at the trial for people to hear. Maybe people will just know that Peter's been arrested and they'll see the dedication and devotion of this man of God and they'll want what Peter has. Father, I pray that there's an opportunity for the gospel here and then Fifth, of course, that God would be glorified. And Father, however this plays out, whether to the benefit of Peter continuing to live or his martyrdom, God, I pray that you would be glorified in this. I, I feel like those are the five things they would have been praying. They're seeking the Lord earnestly. And as Peter awaits execution, here's, listen to what John Polwell 
Paul Hill says here, he says, the Christians used their most effective means of assistance. They prayed. Have you thought about that? That the most effective thing you do as a Christian is your prayers. So in the midst of these crushing circumstances, here's, here's, here's what I'm seeing. Like our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus. Whatever else is happening around us, our eyes must be fixed on Jesus. So much so, so fixed on Jesus that the circumstances become, really become incidental, almost unimportant to us. We, we, this is what we do. Generally speaking, in the midst of a trial, we fix our eyes on the trial. We get our eyes on the circumstances and we only give passing glances to the Lord. And, and we're talking here about fix your eyes on Jesus and the circumstances become incidental and become merely the means by which we are drawn closer to God. Thank you for these circumstances. It is so tough right now, but I'm so much closer to you. And that intimacy with him becomes so cherished that we're willing, so to speak, we're willing to go to prison. We're, we're willing to sacrifice anything, to lose anything to be closer to God. We're, we're willing to be martyred, to lose our lives if it means being closer to Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was here at the office and, and um, a, a friend stopped by, a pastor friend stopped by, somebody I've known since college days. And um, he came into my office and, and um, a few years ago, really just a, a very few number of years ago, he left his thriving church, his thriving ministry, and he took on a new role in his denomination's office. And he had been a very successful pastor, had led them through some wonderful visions, some tremendous growth. He's a great leader. And he took this, this new position and, um, and I thought, you know what, this is the perfect job for him. He's going to be great at this, and the other pastors are going to respect him so much, and he's going to be able to accomplish so much in this new role. And only a year or so into it, he was felled by a series of physical ailments that not only crushed him physically, but crushed him emotionally and mentally as well. And I need to tell you, he's my age. We were in college at the same time. And it... it in the summer, he, he recognized that he was no longer able to do the job that he had taken just a couple years before. And so he had to resign from that. And he's still recovering. Even while he sat in my office with me, it was pretty obvious that he's still recovering and he still isn't fully healthy. And yet he has a desire when the time comes to serve again in vocational ministry in some capacity. And the, the thing about him, it was, a, it was a shock for me to see him the way he was. Because the thing about this man is he was always, he always had a very strong presence in any room that he walked into, not in an arrogant way, not at all. He's just a good leader. And he was so greatly respected by the people that he led and his peers, all of it. And he carried himself so well. He was influential. He, he spoke well. Um, but again, no trace of pride, even with his influence in others' lives. And as he sat there and told me his story, all of that all of that presence, all of that um, leadership that seemed to be in him just seemed to be gone. And having lost so much, he said to me, he said this, through it all, he says, even though I've lost so much, he said, through it all, I've never been closer to Jesus. I've never been closer to Jesus. And what was clear in the conversation was that the rest of it, it didn't even matter anymore. 
And when we think about the darkness, we think about how insidious and how awful it is. But you know, for the Christian, the darkness actually does something positive for us. The advantage of the darkness for a Christian is it drives us closer to Jesus. The darkness, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the darkness shouldn't scare you, not even a little bit. The darkness shouldn't discourage you, not even a little bit. It shouldn't crash your faith. When you see the darkness coming, it should drive you immediately to the light. It should drive you closer to Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. What I just said is the only thing that makes life make sense. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever otherwise. Because this frames up every trial you'll ever go through, every difficulty you'll ever face, all the persecution, all the misunderstandings, all the disrupted relationships will all of a sudden make sense because it's about the encroaching darkness and the light of Jesus Christ shining in the midst of that. This is what makes life make sense. Here's the third one. When I have the light, I anticipate his intervention more eagerly. Herod has, has plans here. He's going to bring Peter out, parade him before the people, let the people kind of decide what's going to happen to him. It's not going to go well. But verse 6, that night Peter was, Peter was sleeping. That statement alone seems ridiculous to me. He's in a prison. It's not a comfortable place. He's, he's fastened by chains, we find out, two guards on either side of him, but he's sleeping. And, and um, I don't know about you, but, but I can have trouble sleeping sometimes. You have trouble sleeping sometimes? And, and Peter's completely at peace. He's, he's, he shouldn't be sleeping in this situation is kind of what I'm trying to say. And yet he's out cold. We, we have trouble sleeping when there's a bill that's going to come out overnight and we're not sure if we have enough money for it, right? We have, we have trouble sleeping when our kids are out late. We have trouble sleeping when there's bad weather. We have trouble sleeping when we're overloaded at work. We have trouble sleeping when we have to preach a message the next day. We have trouble, that was just for me. Uh, we, have, we have trouble sleeping when there's nothing going on in our life that should cause us to lose sleep, but we have trouble sleeping. And so I'm a little jealous of Peter here, who's having no trouble sleeping, though he is in prison. Bound with two trains, chains, uh, verse 6 says, between two soldiers, and there's, and there's guards at the door. And he went to sleep with it in his mind, I'm going to die tomorrow. Now, you only have peace like that if you have a deep and abiding sense that God is sovereign and you can trust him no matter what. When you have that kind of trust in God, you can sleep. And Peter has it, even though he knows that, that rescue is off the table. This uh, quote from Alistair Begg, I saw this week, I posted it on my socials on Friday. He says, you don't know who you are until you know God. And listen to this. You don't know how to live until you've settled the question of how to die. 
I mean, every Christian's settled. Hopefully, if you're a Christian, you've settled the matter of how to die. And that's what's allowing you the freedom to live your Christian life at peace with God, at peace with the world, understanding the darkness and seeking the light. But if you haven't settled the question of how to die, of course you don't know how to live. If you haven't settled the question of, of, of who God is and knowing him, then of course you don't have your identity set. Peter knew how to die, so he knew how to live. He, and, and, ha, and living for him in that moment was getting some sleep. He knew how to live. I'm going to die tomorrow, but I love Jesus, and I'm going to see him. I might as well get some sleep. And he knew who he was because he knew Jesus. So, so do you know Jesus? Do you, do you know how to die? And if you do, you'll be at peace no matter what you face. He's so sound. Notice verse 7. He's so sound that even the presence of an angel standing by him and even the light shining in the cell, that's not enough to wake him. That's how sound he is. If you're the parent of a toddler, and you're sound asleep in your bed, on the edge of your bed, on your side, and that little three-year-old or four-year-old just comes in in the middle of the night and parks their face right beside your face. You know what I'm talking about? That's terrifying. <laughs> and the strange thing about it is the child doesn't necessarily say anything, doesn't touch you, weirdly just stands there. I might be talking from personal experience here just stands there staring at you and somehow just the presence of this small child is enough to wake you up in terror. Now, Peter has an angel of God, a heavenly being is standing in his jail cell and there's light all around. He's still sawn logs. He's still out cold. He's not waking up at all. So the angel does what the only thing you can do, he strikes him, not a gentle nudge. The word is strike. He hits Peter. An angel hits Peter on the side and, and yells at him, wake up. Okay, arise quickly. Arise quickly. And in this very moment, having roused him, his chains fell off. And then, look at verse 8. Then the angel treats him like a toddler. He does. He treats him like a toddler. Notice this. Treats him like a four-year-old. Verse 8, put your pants on. Put your pants on. Tie your shoes. Tie, and it's just one instruction at a time. Once you have your pants on, now you can tie your shoes. And then verse 8 says, oh, so he did those two things. Now, put on your coat, Peter, Peter. Put on your coat. And then he says to him, follow me. Four instructions, one after another, just like a four-year-old, you can't give them too much at the same time. Just one thing at a time. Some wives are saying, I do that with my husband. <laughs> so he does everything. He does everything the angel says, verse 9. And he's following him out. He follows him out, went out and followed him. But he's so dazed. 
He so days, he did not know, verse 9 says, he did not know that it was all real, but thought it was a vision. He did, he's so groggy. He's that person. See, when I wake up in the morning, I wake up. I wake up. Like, I'm, I woke up before my alarm today. I just woke up, and I'm awake, and I just get into my day. And I, um, I know someone really close to me. I won't say their name, but they sat right down there at 9 o'clock next to my chair. And that person who I've known for a long time um, does not wake up that way. So she's more like, oh, sorry. (laughs) She's more likely to go downstairs in the morning, and if I haven't made her coffee for her, she's more likely to take the beans and not grind them and put them right into the press and expect that that's going to make coffee, okay? And and I'll I'll say, babe, babe, you didn't grind the beans. She says, well, I ha-. this is her logic. I haven't had my coffee yet. <laughs> yeah, I haven't had my coffee yet. So one step at a time, Peter's finally waking up. He did not know it was all real, but thought it was a vision. There's, there's definitely some inspired comedy here, which is fabulous. And, and, I, and I say this, in this way, and we're looking at the comedy of this, and Luke included these funny moments in this narrative because we're talking about interventions, and we need God to intervene in our lives, and sometimes the intervention isn't some big thing like getting out of prison, but it's these little glimpses of eternity that he gives us, these little interventions that he gives us in our lives, and I'm telling you, laughter is one of those interventions because life is very difficult, and in those moments when we can laugh, it's an awesome look into eternity when all the pressures of everything will be gone. There are too many, here's the thing, I'm, I'm telling you, there are too many joyless Christians, too many joyless Christians who are so fearful and so worried and so angry about everything. And they're taking everything in life entirely too seriously. And yes, I get it. Our mission is a solemn one. I get that we're supposed to be sober-minded in what we do. I get that what we're doing concerns the souls of men and women. And there are eternal consequences to the mission that we're carrying out in this world. I know that we live a life of sorrow, pain. I know that physical death stalks us every day of our lives. And we have the theme of crucifixion and suffering in front of us. And, And we are told as we look at the cross, we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that we are, Galatians 2.20, we are crucified with Christ. It is death to self, and that's a serious theme. But the rest of that verse, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And what does it mean to live? But to be able to laugh. These, These dark themes, these difficult themes are only too real for the Christian, and they exist because of the world that we live in. The world's a dark place, but we have the light. And that light gives us hope. And the Lord is kind enough to give us glimpses of what it's going to be like when we stop shedding tears. Think about the Jews. The Jews, 500 years before uh, the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ, they were coming back from Babylonian exile. Cyrus had finally said they could go back, and they're going back to the land, and the land is a mess. They get back to Jerusalem, to Israel, 
The, the land had been lying fallow. It hadn't been cultivated in seven decades. They're starting over on their agricultural lands. The city of Jerusalem has no walls. It has no temple. It's a mess. There are warlords basically running all over the land of Israel. But they've been told they can go back. And so the, the waves of, of, of exiles now released are going back to Jerusalem. They're going back to Israel. And Psalm 126 is their song. It's the song they're singing as they're going back to this absolute disaster of a land after seven decades of being disciplined by God in Babylon. And you know what they say? Our mouths are filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Because God gave them a glimpse, a look into eternity. And you are a joyless Christian when you never stop to, to laugh in the here and now in anticipation of the joy that exists for us in eternity. Proverbs 17 says, uh, verse 22, a cheerful heart is good medicine. Have you heard that before? A cheerful heart is good medicine. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is giving us some medicine in, in Acts chapter 12 with this story telling us of Peter's escape. It's a funny story. You can imagine when the angel got back and he's in the lunchroom telling the other angels that they were really yucking it up. This is funny. So verse 10, back to the action. He gets past the first and the second guard. Remember, he's chained to two. There's a squad of four. He's chained to two. There's one at this door. There's one at the other door. He gets past the, those two guards then they come to the iron gate that leads to the city. It just opens like it's on a remote, opens of its own accord. And we know it's really the Lord doing this. And Peter went down one street. So he kind of heads down a city block and maybe turned a corner and the angel was gone. And then, and only then, verse 11, Peter came to himself and said, dang it, I'm out. This isn't a dream. It's not a dream. I was paraphrasing. God delivered me from Herod and the Jewish people, he said, these Jewish people that wanted him dead. Now, again, not all, not all interventions end this way. And there was a day, and historians tell us that there was a day when Peter was executed in the city of Rome, and he was crucified upside down. The intervention didn't come for him. But God is intervening in history, and God is intervening in your life, and small ways and eventually in one very big way because the apocalyptic visions in Revelation point to that day when the light will overcome the darkness for good. We're all headed there if we know Jesus. All right, here's the final, the final little bit of it. Having the light of Christ, I bind myself to the church more enthusiastically. So verse 13, Peter's knocking at the door. Rhoda comes to the door, verse 14. Now, obviously, this is a place the church gathered because Rhoda knew Peter's voice, knew it was him. She recognized Peter's voice, verse 14, but was so excited, she didn't open it, but ran back into the house and let everyone know, Peter's at the door. He's trying, again, back to Bourne for a second. He's trying to evade capture. He's on a city street. There are perhaps witnesses around. He's trying to discreetly knock so that he's not waking up neighbors. And so he just wants to be let in as quickly as possible so he can let them know he's out. And she leaves him 
out on the street trying to evade the notice of anybody who happened to be out, hoping to go unnoticed. He's hoping someone inside is going to say, well, let him in, let him in. But no, do they do that? No, verse 15. But they think, they think she's lost it. You are beside yourself, they say. You're crazy. But she kept insisting he was there. They claim it's his angel, which I don't even have a category for that response. That there's no biblical, I know some of us, this is about guardian angels and, and there's Jewish tradition attached to it. There's nothing in the Bible about everybody, anybody having a guardian angel. Some of you probably need a guardian angel, that's for sure. But, but there's nothing in the Bible about that. It could be that we do have guardian angels, but we don't know that for sure from the scriptures. But anyways, there's a Jewish tradition about it. And these Christians who are praying have fallen back into their old Jewish traditional ways and say, it's just his angel. But really what they're trying to do is just get rid of Rhoda. Meanwhile, verse 16, what's Peter doing? He's on the street. Keep knocking. And when they opened the door, because they kept hearing the banging, and they saw him, they were astonished. Which is weird, because this is what they were praying for. How many times do we pray and we're going, Jesus, I pray that you would save this person. But in our minds, we're going, Jesus is never going to save this person. Right? And that's what's going on here. They didn't believe that God was going to answer their prayer. Now, listen, here's the thing that's serious about this is the believers were bound to Peter and Peter was bound to them, even in this very difficult moment. In other words, this, this wasn't his trial alone. This was their trial. They were going through this together. You know, Galatians 6.2 says, uh, Paul writes to the Galatian believers, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear each other's burden. In in Romans 12.15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So I'm supposed to laugh with you and I'm supposed to cry with you. I'm supposed to be there in the hard times and you're supposed to be there in the happy times for me. They were bound to each other. And we need a greater sense of this in the church. And it's not easy to cultivate. And in fact, in that season of time, which shall not be mentioned from 2020 to 2022, do you know what season of time I'm talking about? Which shall not be mentioned. In that season, let's just agree together that no matter what side of the issue we stood on, we all understood that it was an assault on the basic biblical idea of being the church. Can we agree on that? It drove us into isolation and beyond that, further into individualism. Everything, everything I'm reading right now with respect to our, our culture, the times that we're living in, is how individualistic we're becoming. Everything on our phones, if you carry a smartphone, everything on our phones is being curated for us individually. Not you as a couple, not you as a family, not us as a church. Everything is being curated for you individually. Yes, your phone is listening to you. Yes, your phone is driving content to you based on conversations that it hears you having based on conversations and even connectedness to other phones around you. 
Everything you search, everything that you look at, every reel you watch, every picture you look at, everything you like, everything you share is being logged and is being, is being cultivated together, all pulled together, curated just for you. you. You can share your stuff with other people and they may like your stuff and interact a little bit with you. And there might be some commonalities between you and another person, but, but make no mistake, they're creating a lane that they are restricting you to walk in. You think you're looking at the whole internet and you're not. You think you're looking at all of social media and you are not. You are looking at a small slice of it that the algorithms have decided you're going to look at. And the more you look at those things, the more they drive those things to you. You don't see the other side of any issue. If you keep looking at, at videos related to the one issue you're you're passionate about, you think everybody's looking at that because that's the only thing you ever see because the algorithms have decided that's the only thing you're going to see. We are being driven into an individualistic and isolationist world that is for one person tailored just for you to experience and it's keeping you from other people. And we need to be, as the followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be countercultural. We need to push against the culture and instead bind ourselves to each other. We need to bind ourselves to the church with enthusiasm. The church, both universal and local, is described because we have both of those. In the scriptures, we have places where the, the universal church, or the global church is described, all believers from all times everywhere in the world, the genuine believers are part of the universal, often capitalized, capital C church. But then we have the local church, which is an expression of the global church. And, and in the scriptures, both the global church and the local church are described as the body of Christ. The global church is the body of Christ, and the local church is the local expression of the body of Christ. In both cases, they're referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit or the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The global church is the temple of the Holy Spirit and the local church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you are not connected to the local church in any meaningful way, then you are not connected to what the Bible calls is the body of Christ, the local body of Christ. You are not connected to the local temple of the Holy Spirit. And so in a very practical way, the way this is playing out in our church and why this is so important to us right now, because coming out of that 2020 to 2022 season, some changes have happened here as they have happened in many, many churches, all churches. But here's one thing we do. Because we have invested so much in having an online presence that we now mean to continue beyond that season, we have people watching the live stream right now, we have people who will be watching on demand this week, because we have that, we have, we have coined this phrase. And it's very important for understanding why we do this and how we do it. We talk about this, on-demand, good. If you're watching on-demand this week, it's good. I'm glad that you're doing it. Live stream, better. Why is it better? Because you're at least in real time gathered with God's people. So if you're watching the live stream right now, that's awesome. Thanks for joining us. On-demand, good. Live stream, better. In person, it's best. There's no way to get around it. It's, it's just best. Now, I don't want to make anybody feel bad for watching on demand or live stream. We've invested a lot in order to make that happen. There's a lot of good reasons, very legit reasons for watching on the live stream. 
There could be sickness. Could be a result of travel that you're watching, or you live at a distance away. And we know I have some people that are part of our, our church family who are at some distance and can't make it here. People who are working, people who are new to faith, who are examining things. They don't want to come through the door, but they're happy to watch a live stream. We're, we're grateful you're watching. People who are new to town and they're looking at various churches. They used to have to do one Sunday in one church and next Sunday at another church. Now they can watch five churches, six churches on a Sunday and find out which church God wants them to be a part of as they, as they settle into the community. And so this is important to us. On demand is good and live stream is better and in person is always, always, always going to be best. And so I'm going to say this, and this is a good thing to remember here, just tuck away. If you can be here, you should be here. If you have the ability to be here in the room, this is where you should be, engaged in worship with God's people. You should be connecting in a small group because we can't all connect in a meaningful way in these uh, two services on Sunday. You need to be in a small group. You need to be in one of our groups or classes. You need to find a place of service where you can be using your spiritual gifts because that's another way we bind ourselves uh, to one another. We need to be engaged in a meaningful way in the life of the church. We need to be bound together as the body of Christ and as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in doing this, in being the church, we become the light of the world. The very thing we're going after in this message. And Jesus said in that, in that very verse in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are the light of the world. And he went on to say, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And that's what the church of Christ is. It's a city on a hill. You put a city on a hill and everybody can see it no matter where they are. All around it, everybody can see the city. The lights are on, everybody can see the city. And that's the church. That's what we need to become. Because it pushes back the darkness in this world. And it pushes back the darkness in the lives of people who are desperately in, in need of that light to shine on them to have the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ in each of their lives. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, again, so uh, much in the way of challenge here for us uh, today as as Christians. And Father, we want to hear your word and live this out. Um, Father, I pray that we would be pushing back the darkness in our own lives, in our homes, in the lives of our friends and family in this community through the preaching of the gospel, which itself is light. I pray, God, that we would be understanding this more and more as we walk with you. And I pray for those who have not yet come to the light of Jesus Christ and experience the forgiveness that comes from knowing Jesus Christ, having this light in their own life. I pray, God, you would be moving in their life, whether here in the room or on the live stream, on demand, God, Do a deep, deep work in each of our lives to let this light shine. Help us to understand these things deeply this this week, Lord, to think deeply about these things and to see you do an awesome work intervening in our lives to let this light shine. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.